Well, good morning, church family. <laughs> so let's imagine you're in the market for a new car. And you flip through the sales papers, you find the perfect one. So then you go down to the dealership, you meet with the salesman, and you want to take a closer look at this car. He leads you to the car, and as far as you can tell, this is going to be the perfect fit for you. You love the style, you love the paint, you love the color, you love the trim, every detail of this car you are falling in love with. So then you tell the salesman that you want to look inside the car. So he opens up the driver's side door, you step in, um, sit down in the driver's side seat, you put your hands on the wheel, and this car feels like the perfect car. You're almost ready to buy it. But now you tell the salesman you want to see the car's engine. So you pop the button, you walk around to the front of the car, you lift the hood, you look inside the engine compartment, and the compartment is completely empty. There is no engine in this car. And so you turn to the salesman and you say to him, hey, where's the engine in this car? The salesman replies, well, this car doesn't have an engine. Is that going to be a problem for you? Okay. Of course it's going to be a problem for you. The engine is the most important part of the car, right? I mean, if you don't have an engine, you basically don't even have a car. You might have a model car, you might have a showpiece, but you don't have a real car. Well, friends, what's true of cars is also true of local churches. See, on the outside, a local church can look really beautiful. It can have a, a nice building. It can have lots of people inside. You can look a little deeper into the church and see lots of ministry activities taking place. Maybe the church is even contending for sound doctrine. But if that local church has no proper engine then it's actually not even a true church. So what's the engine of a true church? Well, according to the scriptures, it is love. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for the cause of Christ. It is love. And if a church is lacking in love, then nothing else about that church really matters. Even if its activities are good, even if it teaches in accord with sound doctrine, if love for God and neighbor is not the thing driving these activities, then they are of no eternal value. Now, friends, today we're in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1028. And in this passage, we have a description of a church that has a lot of good things going for it. As we'll see, this church is active in ministry. It is persevering through adversity. It is teaching sound doctrine. A lot of good things are going for this church. And yet, there is one problem in the church. Their engine is failing. In other words, their love is growing cold. And in this passage, Christ is going to warn the church that if they allow their love to completely die out, then they will cease to count as a true church of Christ. And then they will miss out on all that Christ has in store for his church. And friends, what is said to this church in this context applies to all churches in all places and at all times. All churches must be vigilant to maintain the love that they had at the first. 
Now, I'd like to begin our time in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider this more closely. So let's bow together. Our Lord, we do thank you for gathering us today as a local church. Thank you for each one that has come. Lord, would you please bless them? Would you please minister your word to their hearts today? We also think of those who are away right now because they might be ministering in other places or perhaps their home recovering from illness or surgery. Would you watch over them, Lord? And as they tune in today, might they be, be blessed by their time uh, in the Word as well. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts, that we would be receptive to this passage. Lord, would you protect our church so that it does not become a church without an engine, a church that loses its love for you, for the loss, for the cause of your Son in this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we begin in chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, this entire passage is a letter to a church. And here in the opening verse, we see who it's written to and who it's written by. So the verse says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this, quote, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Okay, so we see here, it's a letter written to the church of Ephesus. Okay, this was one of the seven churches of Asia that the whole book of Revelation is written to. Now they have a letter written exclusively to them. And we see who has authored the letter. It's Christ himself. He's the one who holds the seven stars and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. These words help us to understand the relationship that Christ has to his churches. You'll recall from last week's text of those seven stars, those seven lampstands, they're representative of the churches of Christ. And Christ is the one who holds them in his hand, who walks in their midst. This signifies the fact that Christ is Lord of his church. He's the head of it. He is sovereign over his church. He walks in the midst of his people. He protects his church. He, he keeps them in a place of eternal security. And it's on this basis that he has the right to tell his churches what they're doing well and what they are not doing well. And so this is what Christ will now do for the church in Ephesus. And he begins with this statement, verse 2. He says, I know your works. So the head of the church, the ruler of it, the one who guards and upholds the church, he knows his church. He knows it inside and out. He knows his church is better than they know themselves. He knows their thoughts, their motives. He knows their actions. He knows what they would do under different sets of circumstances. He knows the hearts of his people. Friends, what a wonderful and a scary thought that is, that our Lord Jesus Christ comprehensively knows his people. And here he says he knows their works. And now he elaborates on their works. It involved toil and patient endurance. You see that in verse 2. Let's start with that first word. He knew of their toil. This translates a Greek word that means laboring to the point of exhaustion. 
So as Christ looked at the church of Ephesus, he did not see a lazy church. He did not see one that was hungering for entertainment and ease. No, this was a church that loved to be active in the work of the ministry, right up to the point of physical exhaustion. And he saw that about them. And then he saw this other trait, that they, that they had patient endurance. Now this speaks of their perseverance in times of adversity. And friends, the church of Ephesus really did face a lot of adversity. We learn about some of it in, in uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 19. There we learn that the city of Ephesus was the home to the temple of Diana. Diana was the goddess of love in the pagan world. And the entire economy of the city of Ephesus was based upon the worship of this false god. So there were all kinds of businesses in town that manufactured little idols that they would sell for a profit. They, they welcomed travelers from all over the Roman Empire. And so the whole city was just built upon the worship of Diana. Well, then the apostle marched into the city, began preaching the gospel, and converts were made. And then a little local church was formed. And this church was passionate for God, for his son Jesus. They were passionate to reach their neighbors. And so they began to fan out all over the city, making more and more converts. And next thing you knew, the entire economy of Ephesus was being disrupted. And all these shopkeepers who were manufacturing these little idols, they weren't able to sell as many idols anymore because people were worshiping Christ now, not Diana. And they were becoming infuriated by the work of this gospel church. Things got so bad that the merchants in Ephesus stirred up a riot against the church. And so the Christians in Ephesus were facing slander. They were facing the seizure of their property. They were being driven out of town. The law was coming down on them. They were being jailed. All kinds of things just because they were worshipers of Jesus and they were convincing others to worship Jesus with them. And so, yes, this church was facing tremendous adversity. And yet, as the Lord Jesus looked down at this church, he saw that they were enduring it all well. They were patiently enduring their trials. I love Pastor Scott's definition of these words. He says this speaks of triumphant fortitude that does not let the trial win. That's what they were all about. And so, friends, here we see by, by Christ's own testimony that this was a local church active in ministry to the point of exhaustion. Here was a church persevering through all of the trials of life, including the persecution they were facing. And it was all good that the church was like this. You see, orthopraxy, which is right church practice, this is essential to a true gospel church. And this was one of the marks of the church of Ephesus. But then you'll notice that Christ goes on. They weren't just right in their orthopraxy, but they were right in their commitment to orthodoxy, right doctrine. Look at the second part of verse 2. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and, here's the next thing, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. 
But instead, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. So there in Ephesus, you also had a group of men coming in. They were presenting themselves as true apostles of Christ. That is, real representatives of Christ. And they were using this to try to gain access into the church. They wanted to spread their teachings among the Ephesian believers. And who were these false teachers? Well, we learn a little bit more about them down in verse 6. They're identified as the Nicolaitans there. The Nicolaitans. That word literally means the followers of Nicholas. We're not sure who this man Nicholas was. There are all kinds of, of suggestions. But all we know is that Nicholas was a man living in the ancient world who was amassing a large following to himself. And we know a little bit about what he taught. He was apparently trying to create a a synthesis between Christian teachings and pagan teachings. And specifically, he was trying to wed together Christian worship with the worship of idols, probably Diana herself. And he was also trying to make Christian morality compatible with pagan immorality. So he's trying to create this hybrid system that is partly the doctrines of Christ and is partly the teachings of the pagans. And he's offering himself as a real apostle trying to convince the church of Ephesus to go along with all of this. But look how the church of Ephesus responded. He writes... You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. So the church of Ephesus received these false teachers, and they said, wait a minute, you're calling yourselves apostles? Let's compare you to the apostles we know. How do you line up to Peter and Paul and John and the others? When they compared these so-called apostles with the apostles they knew, they saw that there was a problem. And then they compared the teachings and the lifestyle of these so-called apostles, compared them to what they knew of Christ and the real apostles. And again, they saw a disconnect. And so the church of Ephesus refused to grant these false teachers access into their local church. And it was right for them to do this. You see, friends, if they had allowed the Nicolaitans into their church, if they had allowed those ideas to spread, then the gospel itself would have been obscured. And that is the only message that gives anyone hope of everlasting life. They would have lost the message of the church. Friends, it was right for them to contend for sound doctrine. And friends, in every age and in every place, the Church of Christ has a responsibility to contend for sound doctrine. You see, in every age and in every place, there are false teachers who would love nothing more than to gain entrance into true churches of Christ, to spread their false doctrines. And you know the thing about these false teachers? They're not going to come into the church dressed like devils. They're going to come in with suits and ties. They're going to have big smiles on their faces. They may have seminary degrees plastered to their walls. They're going to speak well of Christ and his word. They're going to talk of their love for his church. 
But underneath all of that, there will be doctrines subversive to the gospel of Christ. Doctrines which, if embraced, would rot the church out from the inside. And so churches must ever be vigilant about maintaining sound doctrine. My friends, the American landscape itself is just littered with church buildings that were built by, by believers with a passionate love for God and Christ. They erected these buildings to worship God, to reach their neighbors. But over time, they ceased to be vigilant. And the false teaching began to creep in. And next thing they knew, they were overwhelmed with false teaching. And now all over the American landscape, there are church buildings with auditoriums that will hold hundreds of people. But inside you find a handful. The church has died because it's lost its gospel message. Churches must ever be vigilant. To lose sound doctrine is to lose the gospel. To lose the gospel is to lose our hope of salvation. And looking at the church of Ephesus, Christ could say, You have done well. You have been vigilant. Verse 3, he says, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary doing so. You know, friends, in so many ways, this was a model church, wasn't it? I mean, to be active in ministry to the point of exhaustion, to be persevering through all of the persecution, and to do so with with um, persistence, to contend for sound doctrine, to refuse entrance of false teachers. All of this was greatly commendable. And it says, verse 3, they were doing it all for the sake of his name even. That means they weren't trying to build a name for themselves. They weren't trying to be controversialists or anything like that. They were doing it because they wanted Christ to have a name in their city. In so many ways, this was a model church, the kind of church that, that we would want to be. But at the same time, all was not right with this church. All was not right. Something was missing under the hood, and it's identified in verse 4. Christ says, but, which means, yes, a lot is going right in your church Unfortunately, there's something going wrong. And here it is. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at the first. So here is a local church which is blameless in its practice. It is blameless in its doctrine. But it is losing its engine. It's losing the very thing that is supposed to drive your fight for doctrine and right practice. They were losing their love. We call this orthopathy, rightly ordered affections for God. And friends, this was not a minor problem. It was a big, big deal. Because according to the scriptures, love for God and for neighbor is the most important thing of all. In Matthew 22, a lawyer asked Jesus this question. So Jesus, of all the commands of scripture, which one is the greatest? Jesus answered this way. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. That's the most important of them all. And then he said the second greatest is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love for God, love for neighbor. This is the starting point for the life of faith. Then listen to what the Apostle Paul said about love in 1 Corinthians 13. He wrote, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have no love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. You see, the Christian life without love is not a Christian life. It's nothing, he says. And then listen to how the Apostle Peter describes the Christian life in 1 Peter chapter 1. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He caused us to be born again to a living hope. And now verse 8, here's what it looks like because they're born again. He says, Though you have not seen God, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So according to the Apostle Peter, here is the born-again life. It's a life in which you do not see God with your physical eyes, but you love Him still. And you rejoice in Him and you hope in Him and you long for Him. That's the Christian life. And everything else, the, the lifestyle that flows out of Christ's teachings, the contending for, for sound doctrine, the perseverance through adversity, all of it is, is driven by your love for God, your desire to please Him, the hope you have in God, your love for neighbor and desire to see them come to a relationship with God through Christ. Love is the engine of the Christian life and of the local church. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. If anyone has no love, let him be accursed. And so you see, my friends, if your religion is one of right doctrine and right practice only, and there is no love in it, you have not yet understood the first business of religion. Or to quote the New England Puritan Jonathan Edwards, he who has no religious affection is in a state of spiritual death. You see, my friends, love is the cardinal virtue. It's at the heart of saving faith, and it is the engine which drives the whole Christian life. It's to be the engine driving local church life. But friends, something had happened in the church of Ephesus to cause its love to grow cold, and I don't know what that was. Perhaps the constant flurry of activities was causing them to emotionally burn out, and so their love was growing cold. Maybe constantly facing these false teachers was wearing on them, and that was making their love grow cold. Maybe it was constant persecution from their city, 
and they were burning out. I don't know what caused that love they had at the first to start to grow cold, but that's what was happening. And it was threatening the very life of this church. Look at the end of verse 5. Christ says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember the lampstand, symbolic of a true church of Christ. He stands among his lampstands. Christ says here, your love is growing cold, church of Ephesus. If that flame goes out and there is no love left in your church, nothing else will matter. Your doctrine, your practice, your perseverance, none of it will matter. I'm going to take that lampstand that represents your church. I'm going to remove it from my presence. You will no longer qualify as a true church of mine. That's how serious the matter was. See, friend, right doctrine and right practice are just meaningless to Christ if there is no love driving those things. Just as gestures not driven by love are meaningless to all of you. Wives, imagine your husband coming home late one evening. Maybe he's come home from work and he's got a great big bouquet of flowers. And he comes over and he hands it and he says, here, this is for you. How is that going to make you feel? You'll probably, my wife knows what this feels like. <laughs> You'll pr- at least not for a while. <laughs> but how would it make you feel? Imagine how you, you know, would feel. Probably very loved. You would, you would treasure those flowers because they were a gesture of love from your husband. But imagine this scenario. Your husband hands you that beautiful bouquet of flowers. You take the flowers and you say, Thank you so much, dear. And he says, Well, it's not because I love you. It's because I'm your husband, and this is what husbands are supposed to do. Just take it. Then how would you feel about the flowers? I got a feeling those flowers are either going to end up back in his face, or they're going to end up in the garbage can. Well, they were still the same flowers. What made the difference? Well, the first time, it was a gesture of love. Second time, it was nothing but duty. There was no love for you at all. You see, love makes all the difference. It's the same thing between Christ and His church. You know, the Scriptures say that that the relationship between Christ and the church is a marriage relationship. The church is called the bride of Christ. In fact, the Scriptures teach us that our earthly marriages down here are just meant to be pictures of that greater spiritual marriage between Christ and His church. You know, in this spiritual marriage... Christ loves us, and He wants us to love Him in return. And He wants all of our actions, be they they ministry activities or contending for the faith, persevering under trials, whatever they might be, He wants all of them to be gifts to Him that arise out of our love for Him, out of our desire to please Him. If there's no love there, the gestures are meaningless to Him. And so this is why he says, if you lose your love entirely, I'm just going to take that lampstand and I'm going to remove it from my presence. You will be no bride of mine any longer. 
So, friend, what do we do if we sense our own love growing cold? How, how can we remedy this situation? Well, Jesus offers guidance to the church of Ephesus here. We can take the guidance to heart. He says, verse 5, First, remember, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So here's the, the first step we can take if we notice our own love growing cold. We can remember what things were like at the start. My friend, do you remember when you first became a Christian? Do you remember the excitement of understanding the gospel message and, and, and really finally realizing what God had done for you through Christ and you embraced Him and you loved Christ for what He had done? And you were so grateful and you were so passionate. You just wanted everybody else to know too. So you started talking to family and friends, inviting them to come to church with you, hoping they would come to see Christ the way you saw Him. You were so passionate at the start. Or remember what you were like the first time you read the Gospel of John all the way through. Or you read Romans chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or remember the first time you read through the book of Revelation. There were all those symbols. It was hard to understand. But you got the main point that Christ wins at the end. And we join in His reign. Think about the excitement that you had That's the first step. Remember where you were at the start. Remember. Let the memory of that stoke that flame up once again. You know, sometimes married couples will report that they just don't feel much in love with each other anymore. You know, sometimes couples like that find it helpful to just take a little time, sit on the couch together, pull out the old photo albums. Look at those pictures from when they were dating. They were so young and foolish. <laughs> Look at those pictures. Look at those activities they went on. And then get the pictures where, where the, the you know, guy was on one knee proposing in our case, my wife and I, we have a picture like that. I think we staged it because there was no camera there at the time it was actually done. But you remember that and you remember the emotions that you were both going through. Look at the pictures from the honeymoon and remember the, the joys of that. And then maybe you have pictures of the first house that you purchased together. And you remember all the crazy things that were wrong with that house. So you remember the weird neighbors that you had to contend with on the side. And you think about the, the day that your baby was, was born, your, your very first, the joy of being there to see this, this life which was created out of your love for each other. Remember, remember what it was like at the start and let it rekindle your love. He gives us a second instruction here. Verse 5, he says, remember from where you've fallen. And then secondly, repent. Repent. That means be dissatisfied with your present direction. Make a determination that you will turn from it and commit to following a new course. It means saying something like this, by God's grace, I will not let my love die out. I will fight for it. I will rekindle it. That's what repentance looks like. And isn't it interesting that Christ can, can require us to repent, 
to feel love for him and his cause again. See, love isn't primarily just a, a, a physical, chemical reaction in our body. It's, it's not just a feeling, but our emotions arise out of our wills. We choose, we choose to feel a certain way toward Christ. He says, exercise your wills, forsake your cold hearts, and move toward him in love again. And then he gives a third instruction here. He says, repent. And then number three, do the works you did at the first. Do the works. So we could say, remember, repent, and then rekindle. Rekindle. Go back to the works that you did at the first, the things that arose out of your great love for Christ. Friends, do you remember how you prayed when you first believed? You probably didn't know any of the Christian jargon you know now. So all you could do is just pour out your heart to God with the language that you had. And it was beautiful. Do that again. Just pour out your heart to God in prayer. Or do you remember how you sang at the first? Maybe you were a little self-conscious about singing because you weren't used to singing in crowds. But you overcame that fear because your heart resonated with the music and it expressed your affections for God. And so you just sang Sing that way again. Did you use devotional books in those early days of your Christian life? Revisit some of those books. Let them stir up your affections again. Did you love reading the Bible? Try reading your Bible again. Allow God to speak to you through his word and stir up your love once more. Maybe you even need to thin out your weekly schedule. If you are feeling burned out in every department of life, maybe it's because you're trying to do too much. See what you can delegate to others, what you might be able to give up altogether. Thin out your schedule so that you have the opportunity to breathe and to feel affection once again. Now, As we come to the end of this passage, we find Christ giving a terrible warning and a precious promise. We saw the warning already. He says, if you don't do these things, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. But then the wonderful promise, verse 7, he says, to the one who conquers, that means to the one who does fight for joy, fight for love and affection for God, and who wins the battle, to that one I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Persevere in the faith and you will receive your prize. You will eat the fruit of the tree that never dies. You will be in God's paradise. You'll be with him forever. Friends, this isn't a statement of work salvation. It's about heart disposition. The one who loves God will maintain his, uh, who is a true believer will love God and maintain that love. He will fight for joy. He will persevere in the faith. He will contend for sound doctrine and he will receive his reward. The one that does not will fall away and prove that they were never truly a disciple of Christ. Now, friends, looking at Grace Baptist Church, we are on the verge of our 20th anniversary. Third Sunday of November, this church is 20 years old. And as I consider this church, I think the greatest threat to us is not that we will slip into false doctrine, and it's not that we will abandon ministry activities. I think that at this point, 
those two things are too deeply embedded into the culture of this church to easily go away. But you know what our greatest threat is? It's the same as that of the church of Ephesus, that the love that we had for God at the first will start to grow cold. This church was founded nearly 20 years ago out of a love for God and a desire for a local church in the Marshall area that would proclaim His word without apology, that would reach the lost with passion. Every charter member of this church was on fire for the things of God. But as the decades pass, there's always a risk that that love will not be passed to the next generation and the next generation. Our task then is to maintain the love that we had at the first. We don't want to be numbered among those church buildings that dot the American landscape that are little more than tombstones, big, beautiful tombstones on the inside with nothing but the spiritually dead. We want this to be a living, a vibrant church, a church that doesn't just persevere in the faith, that doesn't just contend for sound doctrine, that doesn't just aim to reach the lost, but that does so out of the engine of love for God and for neighbor, and out of a desire for His glory alone. By God's grace, might we always be that kind of a church. Let's bow in prayer now. Father, we thank You for this very important letter which You provided to the church of Ephesus. Lord, it speaks to something that can affect any church in any place and at any time. Please, Lord, protect our church. Help us not to lose the love that we had at the first Might that love serve as the engine that drives this ministry from now until the day you call us home. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.